Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Club Book with Rita Woods. My name is Shannon Gibney, and I am a writer and teacher in Minneapolis. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. St. Paul Public Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. And now without further ado, let's get to Rita Woods. Um, Rita Woods is the author behind Remembrance, one of the most celebrated historical fiction debuts in years. Woods' book straddles literary genres and historical epics. In this book, Remembrance is a hallowed refuge for escaped slaves, which exists outside the normal bounds of time and space. The most unusual stop on the Underground Railroad, Remembrance owes its existence to generations of women with secret supernatural abilities. Their personal stories span from the Haitian Revolution of 1791 to the last days of the New Orleans slave trade in the 1850s and up to the present. NPR lauds, remembrance is well-researched, truly epic historical fantasy. Woods creates memorable characters in all her settings, each with a distinct purpose that helps make the impossible relatable. After a short reading by our guests and some initial questions from me, we'll have time for an audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. If you'd prefer to ask a query a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. So let's get started. Rita Woods, welcome. Hi. Shannon, thank you. I'm thank you so, so glad much to for be being here. here. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I thought I would start with a, a short reading um, 
from remembrance. Let me sort of lay the groundwork. Um, it starts right on the eve of um, the Haitian Revolution, which was in 1791. And uh, during that time, the um, a lot of the masters, the planters, were sending their families uh, to both Cuba and to the United States um, to, to safety for this brief interlude that they felt um, until they could get a handle on, um, on this um, revolution. And this is kind of where I'm just going to read a short passage where uh, the woman who would become mother, who becomes Mother Abigail later in, this, in the story is being sent away with her mistress. For months, the rumors had drifted in the slave quarter like ghosts roiling through the coffee groves, gaining strength by the day, whispered from slave to slave, managing to penetrate even Abigail's fog of grief. There was a man, they said, a priest who had spoken to the spirits, and this man had declared war on the blocks. He meant to drive them, every man, woman, and child into the sea. Every night, they said, plantations burned and the blocks were killed in their beds. The warrior maroons carried as their standard not a flag, but the head of a white baby on a pike. And they said when it was over, this war, when the last Blanc had been driven from the last cliff, there would not be a single slave left in Saint Domingue, only free black men and women. And every day the cocoa fields and coffee groves grew emptier as the slaves melted into the mountains to join the fight. Revolte, Abigail moaned, she lay curled in a fetal position, hidden among the rigging and other ship stores that cluttered the aft deck. They'd been at sea, three days, five, since the night the mountain surrounding firewater had finally exploded and what was left of her world had gone up in flames. She struggled to focus, but her memories of that night were broken, jumbled. Monsieur Bruce appearing at her door, no waistcoat, blouse pulled free of his breeches, reeking of stale sweat and ordering her to the main house. Angry white men with guns crowding the halls. Monster Roos's study, watching her as she walked by, hatred and fear naked on their pale faces. Ninette Roos, her mistress in the center of the drawing room, wringing her hands, her red hair matted and tangled, her yellow dress bright in the room. Revolte. They were leaving, taking the last ship from Port de Pay to someplace called Cuba and then on to New Orleans. They were leaving before the Maroons reached far water but they did not include Thierry Roos. He would stay, stand with the other planters and defend his holdings. He had been good to his slaves and they would stand by him. He was sure of this. And they did not include her sons, Claude and Henri. There was no space for them on the ship, no accommodations for them in New Orleans, but Abigail was needed to look after the mistress and baby Julian. Abigail pulled her knees tighter to her chest. She had a vague memory of blocking her master's exit from the drawing room and screaming no into his startled face. She remembered falling and the taste of blood in her mouth. Had he struck her? She couldn't remember. She was stuck, frozen in that last moment with her boys, bending over their sleeping forms, inhaling their musty little boy's scent, touching her nose to theirs. She clawed at her face. She should have kissed their beloved faces and then slit their throats so that she would they would never know fear or sadness, not have to wait and hope for the freedom promised by the Maroons, for they would already have the one true freedom. But she had been a coward. She had let herself believe the master's promise that he would send them to his smaller estate in the South where it was safer. Let herself believe that she would see them again.
I'm letting out a big exhale, Rita, because that section when I read it um, was just as devastating as uh, hearing you read it as well. Um, there's so many themes in the book that we can pick up, but I think one of the most poignant, powerful and difficult is um, the, the destruction of the black family, you know, um, through these ongoing systems of, of racial oppression. Um, and it's just, it's always hard, but I think especially um, when it's children, right. it's, it's just, really hard. Um, I have so many questions for you. <laughs> I warned you before we started talking, so I'm still not going to get to all of them, but this is what happens when you write an arresting and complex um, and engaging uh, novel. Um, I'm just going to jump right in um, and ask you, why did you write this book? Um, what, if anything, do you hope readers will get out of it? So originally it started out, honestly, much in a much simpler form. It was going to be more of a kind of a combination of coming of age and passing on the torch idea. Um, sort of that generational story of here's this woman, Mother Abigail, who has built this thing. She has created her legacy, but she's failing and wants to pass it on to an heir. And that heir does not appreciate it in the same way, doesn't value it in the same way. And so the, initially the story was gonna be about the, the conflict between those two women. This woman who had something she loved dearly and wanted to, to see go forward into the next generations and a woman who kind of sort of got it but didn't have the same um, attachment to it. And that was Winter. But as I as I got deeper into their, into their story, I realized that it was, much bigger than that. And originally that just started with where did Mother Abigail get her power? And um, that sort of led me into the, the study of Udon and then where did that come from, from Haiti? And then it just kind of grew from there. Um, and I have to say, as someone who writes with a historical bent, even though it's speculative fiction, I always want people to take away, yes, this was a good story, but did you know this history? I, I want them to, um, to find out about a piece of history they may have heard a little bit about, but become much more invested in it because now they're invested in these fictional characters. It's, it was it just an interesting uh, genre mix too of the historical and the speculative. That's not something that I myself uh, see that much or encounter that much. So I, I really appreciated that as well. Um, can you take us into your process of writing, researching, and revising this book? Um, you know, what was the impetus? How did you, do, how did it develop? Did you always know that it would be multiple timelines and multiple places with multiple protagonists? Uh, what kind of research did you do? Was it mostly bibliographic? Also, was it experiential? Uh, toggling between various timelines is very difficult to do well. To do well. Um, I know this myself, <laughs> especially while maintaining the narrative tension throughout. How did you do this? So I'm, I'm a research nerd, and I have to say that I'm not a fast writer for a number of reasons, but one 
very important one is that I tend to disappear down these rabbit holes. Like I, I, I'll be supposedly researching the Underground Railroad history in Ohio, and then I get all caught up in the churches and the, the railways. And um, I was telling someone I, I'm doing a, I'm writing a novel now, and I ended up spending 45 minutes researching how do you attach those collars in the 1920s to shirts. That has nothing to do with anything, but I just got totally sidetracked. And so for someone like me, um, it's very easy to get, wow, this is so fascinating. Um, so originally Haiti was going to be this, just kind of a stepping off point, but the history of Haiti is so rich. And then of course, there's these threads that um, connect it to New Orleans and New Orleans, everybody, you know, New Orleans is a character in and of itself. Um, but there were so many things that just let, when I want to look into it for historical accuracy that you find out about, like I had never heard of Revion, and I thought, well, that's got to be in the book, um, you know, and, and just this whole kind of topic. So some of the research process for me usually starts like for everybody, it starts on Google, but, but then the upside of that is you do find links to um, historical societies and um, like there's a, a significant Haitian diaspora here in the United States. Um, the amount of information available on um, 18, 1700s and 1800s New Orleans is limitless. Um, there's, whole, there's whole societies that do nothing but study the placage system in New Orleans. Um, so that was that portion of it. I actually have traveled to Ashtabula and that area. And so I had a very visual cue of what that area looked like, which is where kind of remembrance is, is sort of set physically in the book. Um, so it was a combination of things, you know. Um, I did reach out to some people, um, uh, people who are native French speakers um, who told me that everything that I had written just made absolutely no sense because I'm not a French speaker. And they're like, mm, I don't think that's what you meant. Um, it's like, you know, this is what happens when you learn to speak French on Google. Um, so, um, so there was a combination of that. And there's also like professional organizations that I reached out to. And everyone, when you're writing and you reach out to someone about something they're interested in, they would be more than happy to spend lots and lots of time telling you about, you know, how wooden buttons were made in 1791. There's actually clubs of people who that's all they spend time doing. So that was kind of my process. It sounds very uh, in-depth, laborious. I mean, I, I hate to use that word laborious because you know when you're doing what you love, it's not labor. Right. Um, how long did it did it take you to put the book together? So it probably took about a year and a half. Um, oh, that's fast. Well, the original version, and then it just kind of went from there. And the book was actually bought in that version, but I, I full disclosure, the modern character, um, Gael, did not exist. And that was something that had to be kind of um, added sort of at the, at the behest of the editors. And as you know, as a writer, once you pull one thread, the whole thing starts to come apart. Like, yep. well, that doesn't make any sense because that person died already. So you have to <laughs> almost do this rewriting thing. Um, 
So then there was probably another seven or eight months of that where I had to, I, we had to create a whole new character and then make it actually make sense so that it didn't look like I had just kind of slapped her on there and um, like, what does she have to do with anything? Um, so that, that was the process. So probably altogether two years to get the whole thing That's together. Pretty quick for a novel of the scope and length, actually. Yeah, I'm impressed. Um, in our pre-talk check-in, you shared that you're not part of the Haitian diaspora. As you know, the religion and practice of Voodoo has been very much maligned and misunderstood by white Western US culture. How did you approach representing and exploring it on the page, given this context and your social location as, you know, quote unquote, a cultural outsider? So I have to say that I, I had, I already had a kind of a knowledge that there was a significant misrepresentation. That said, I don't, did not have a whole lot of in-depth knowledge of Udon, and, but I knew that it was not, I knew that it was a religion and I knew that it wasn't about people sticking pens in dolls and biting the heads off chickens. Um, and I, part of that, the approach was that I wanted to approach it very sympathetically and, and respectfully. And, and that was also one of those teaching moments of, I want other people to see that this isn't this Hollywood Bella Lugosi version that, that has been put forth by Hollywood. I was a little, or more than a little taken aback at, at how intentional that misrepresentation was. Um, so Voodoo itself, it became an issue of realizing that it, it is a an amalgam and a defense mechanism of Western African um, spiritual practice melded into French Catholicism as a way of protecting their culture, you know, because it kind of goes undercover, right? Um, the saints were just um, appropriated and just kind of stuck into the pantheon of their little mini gods. And their little mini gods were sort of, and their gods were sort of presented as saints, which was palatable to their French owners. That said, I did not have an awareness that, you know, Thomas Jefferson was so anti-Haitian and that there was a huge PR campaign in the United States to demonize voodoo, voodoo, um, and But it, I guess it made sense because they felt very much like that was the origin or the catalyst that had created this slave revolt and they were terrified they meaning the United States was terrified that this was going to be contagious. And so it was, it was a very systematic, systemic effort to um, bastardize and um, change how voodoo was uh, perceived in the United States and, and in the entire Western Europe as well. And I wanted to kind of, without being didactic, because it is fiction, provide a sort of counter-narrative to that. Thank you. And it's also interesting, I mean, it's like somebody like me who doesn't know that much about Voodoo, it's like there's, there's, it feels like there's elements of it, but I remember that one scene where uh, Mother Abigail asked Josiah, um, you know, well, what is this magic? Is it Voodoo? And he kind of laughs at her and is like, 
it's yes, no, maybe so. <laughs> like right. just open, open, you know, typical Josiah answer, like open your mind, right? right. Like it, it, it's everything, you know? Um, and so it was, that was an interesting moment too, that like, okay, there are these very kind of, um, you know, cultural uh, touchstones of uh, Haitian culture and voodoo, um, but it's also something else. Uh, going on, going on in the book as well, especially with the speculative element. Um, and this is a spoiler, like the book has been out for two years. So I feel like, you know, if you haven't read it yet, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, kind of make a priority <laughs> of that. So I don't feel bad, but I'm just letting y'all know in case you want to mute, just in case. Um, at the end of the book, Josiah comes to Gail and says, the world needs a protector. And so as readers, we have a feeling that like Mother Abigail and Winter, Gail is gonna come into her own magic and power in the service of black people and the underdogs like Toya who have lost everything. Could you speak on that? Um, how is remembrance a story of black female power and agency to save and protect black communities across time, space, and place. Did you know this was what it, it was about when you began the project or, or did it evolve? I think it, um, it evolved. Um, I knew that I wanted it to not just end at the Civil War. I, I knew that I didn't want that. I wanted it to be more generational. You know, we have that belief in our community about you know, we are the dream that our ancestors dreamed. And I, I wanted some, a sort of a sense of that, that um, we can reach back. And I think that again, is very West African, Haitian, et cetera, where you, we reach back in the past is never really the past. Our ancestors are always there looking over us, but I wanted that personified. Um, I was also clear in the beginning that I didn't want somebody to rescue us. You know, um, these women, had horrific things happen to them, devastating things, but they were not victims. They were the owners of their destiny. You know, they could have chosen to be destroyed by their despair, but instead it empowered them. And I knew that I wanted that. Um, but as I as the story evolved, I thought this, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if this was a legacy passed from woman to woman through generations through generations through generation that there was always this person to look out couldn't not necessarily someone who can change the trajectory in big ways but who's always sort of there um with an eye as to bear witness to oppression to bear witness to injustice and when possible to change the trajectory of that and so that sort of became uh particularly when once i added gael you know as the modern character it became clear in my mind that that was her purpose, that she was the bearer of the torch. Yeah, that was a really uh, beautiful moment at the end because I, I didn't necessarily see it coming. I didn't necessarily see the novel ending there. Um, and as a reader, I always like that. I always like that element of surprise, like, you know, and that feeling at the end when you're like, oh, of course it couldn't, it couldn't have ended any other way, right? But I I couldn't see it in that moment right until the end. 
So I thought that was that was masterfully done. Um, in this vein, how does remembrance fit into or not fit into uh, the venerable tradition of Black women fiction writers writing the stories of powerful outcast Black women? And here I'm thinking of Zora Neale Hurston, Gail Jones, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Paul, Paul Marshall, and so many others. And um, do you see your work as speaking to and are part of this tradition? That's, I, you know, that I, I don't even want to be presumptuous enough to think that my name can, you know, be attached to that pantheon, but yeah, sure. Yeah, that's me. Uh, <laughs> I'm just like them. Um, Turns you up the question. It's like, why not partake? Yeah, let's, right? let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the thing that I think that, that is a commonality among all those writers is there is always the thing that will destroy you. There is always that moment where given the right set of circumstances or a different kind of woman or a different kind of person, the, the thing that happens could just rip you apart. And essentially that would be the end of the story. It's like, I have nothing to go on for. But I think the thing that is common in, in all of those stories is that will not only to live, but to survive and to thrive in spite of, um, you know, you read that people like Jay California Cooper and these people have accomplished all of this stuff and they, they built this ranch and then, excuse me, gets, and they want to pass it down to their children and then it gets stolen from them. They could just give up at that point, but they don't. Um, in obviously in the color purple, she could just, all of these horrific things happen to her. But in the end, ultimately she triumphs. It's like, you know, that sort of saying that we say in medicine, it's I'm hard to kill, you know? And I, I, I you know, I, I think that's the commonality is, you know, as black women, we are hard to kill. Um, and we are going to, you know, you can keep trying, but we are going to triumph. Um, so I think that's the common thread that I think Black women writers sort of have through their their stories. Interesting. That's very interesting. I've never heard it quite put that way before. So I'm gonna, we're hard to kill. I'm going to hang on to that. Um, my last question, and then we'll go to um, audience uh, questions. Um, now, I understand you're a family physician. Am I right? Correct. Okay. So, I mean, I know... I know quite a few fiction writers, and I, I have to say you're the first one I've met who is a family physician. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, and um, congratulations on your ability to move between, you know, two really <laughs> different fields. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, how does a family physician come to fiction writing? Um, how do you uh, balance these two dominant professions in your life? So I always tell people that being a physician is about being a storyteller to some degree. Um, when people come to you, they, they come to you and they might not even know what's wrong. So part of our job is that we have to, and I, I will tell patients this sometimes, especially when they're hitting me with 900 pieces of fat. It's like, I need to be able to tell a story. There's a beginning, a middle, and the end. What is it that you're coming here for? For when did it start? What's going on now? And then we'll figure out the end. So I, I mean, I, that's sort of my job. You know, my day job is trying to make a whole bunch of facts fit into a story, into a narrative that makes sense that I can do something with. Um, 
and it's similar in fiction. If you you have all these pieces of information, oh, the collars attached here, and did you know? Do you know where kerosene comes from? Let's talk. You know, interpretine comes from pine tree. That's all interesting, but otherwise, it's just noise. If you can't put it into a a narrative that's interesting. So for me, storytelling was a natural option. You know, I always wanted to be a writer, but my mom said I should be a doctor instead. So, you know, that's a whole nother story. But I, you know, you use some of the same skills, right? In terms of balance, I I just need to be honest with people. I'm always in imbalance, to be perfectly honest. I don't, I can't speak for everyone, but I can certainly speak for myself that you can't do it well all the time. There are days that, um, things just get lost. You know, they, there's that whole thing. Well, if you want to be a writer, you have to put your butt in the seat and just write every day. Yeah, no, the dog is throwing up on the carpet. I've been up all night. I so appreciate you saying that because I also feel like as women, like, I'm like, why is it only men that I hear say that? Like, no women women writers I know will ever say that. Like, no, No. I mean, you can't do that. No, no. You know, because you're the one when the kid eats the crayon that they come to and say, well, what am I supposed to do? Okay, I, I'm writing. And, and But I think that sets up this whole dynamic of you start to feel bad about yourself and like, I haven't written in four days and I am trying to make a leprechaun house instead of writing pages. And then you feel bad and think, well, then I must not be a real writer because I don't sit down every day and write you know, um, and then, you know, there's days when I come home and basically I'm a rutabaga. I can't think of any word. I have no words, you know, I, I can't do the words and, and you have to give yourself grace to be able to do that and still believe I'm a writer. I just have a different process. And until I have a wife, it's just going to be like this. You know, So I really appreciate the realness. Um, I saw this tweet, it cracked me up. It went viral where this woman writer was saying that she was talking to one of her really good writer friends who was a man. And he was basically encouraging her to do what he did, which is get up every morning and write like really early and write for five hours. And she was saying in the tweet, uh-huh. And she was saying in the tweet, um, and that told me everything I needed to know about who does all the housework and you know all the, the the stuff around the house and I just think you know as you say you're a storyteller you know both in the medical profession and you know in the the fictional uh, uh, environment and it's like these stories can be very harmful actually about like what a real writer right. is and what a right. real writer does like right you know and what kind of social location right like enables people to have those kinds of choices and it's messy I mean every right. woman writer I know and especially sort of the more levels uh, of complexity to their identity they have if they're if they're um, you know a person of color if they're differently abled if they're queer you know if they're poor right it's like it it just gets more and more like this this is not gonna work for me so I just I appreciate you keeping it real with us about that um I'm gonna go to a question on Facebook why did you choose to write the book in a non-sequential chronological chronological order what did the going back and forth 
add to the narrative? Um, it felt to me that these were initially very different stories um, and I needed to be um, very true to that story and very in that moment and have the reader invested in those characters very independently with the thought being, if I pulled Gael, Gael out and you only read her story that you would still be invested. If I pulled Margot out, you would still be invested. And I sort of saw that as those, you know, like one of those movies like Crash, where you get to know all these characters and at first you're not sure how they're related. And then they become braided um, much later um, as the story goes on, they become braided, but now you're invested in each one individually. And once they come together, they're braided into a single narrative that you become invested in. And so I think it was more, um, people give me, give writers, and I, I can only speak for myself, give writers a lot more credit for having control than they do, at least for me. Um, it just seemed the right thing to do as it went along. It certainly wasn't something that I sat down and went, I have this brilliant idea. I'm going to, no, it was only as I went along, like, no, I, I need to know these characters better. And if I know them better, then I think my readers will know them better and actually care so that when they come together, there's a much bigger payoff. For me as a reader, it was surprising the ways in which they came together because I, I, I didn't necessarily see it coming, which is a reader I like. Um, you know, when just kind of like winter showed up, right? Like, what is it, like a third of the way through? Maybe yeah. fourth of, like I didn't, um, and she's like a major character in the book, right? So that's like a lot of patience as a writer to wait to introduce a major character like that. And then, you know, sort of like, well, how is she related to Gail and Josiah and all of these? And that's part of the pleasure, I think, uh, of reading the book, right? Um, and But we, we can't experience that pleasure unless we're actually, as you say, invested in the characters. Um, right. So we got another um, uh, question submitted before um, our talk. I appreciate that so many important parts of this book are not centered in the United States, which is the case for most of the pre-1900 historical fiction I read, which leads to my question for Ms. Wood. How has this book been received internationally? That's been a really interesting question. So um, there's been, you know, my agent has been, we've been shopping it in Europe and most of the, uh, it, the kind of the conflict of it has been um, in Western Europe, they see this as kind of a Caribbean story. And uh, you, despite the fact that so much of it takes place outside the United States, um, they see it as either a Caribbean story or a story of the United States. So where it's been, right now we don't have a big, huge international rights. We're still working on that. Um, but that has been the issue, which is really interesting considering that you know, France is involved and all of that, but I think people still see, um, you know, the international community, just many degrees, still see slavery as a, an American issue. They forget, you know, about Portugal and Spain and, and France, or it's a Caribbean issue. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> not to put anything on the Europeans, right? But I mean, it's a colonial history that I'm sure, you know, it's, not a good history <laughs> so I'm no, sure it, it no. in some ways it's like you know 
you know, it, 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 it might not be uh, people's top priority to kind of embrace the complexity and the difficulty of how these colonial adventures, you know, affected the rest of the world, right? Like, right, so right. That could also be a factor. Um, and I'm sure it is. Um, another question from a reader. Uh, which historical period was your favorite to write about? Which generation was the hardest to write and why? Um, my favorite. I think, honestly, I think the New Orleans portion was, was my favorite, mostly because New Orleans has this really strange and convoluted history. Um, and again, I thought I knew history as a history nerd, but the whole, right around that time, that 1790 to 1840s period, I don't think I realized that at the beginning of that, New Orleans was Spanish. And then it really wasn't French until much, much later. And then Americans were thought of as like kind of trashy. Um, they, they weren't allowed to be buried in good cemeteries. They weren't part of the upper class. If you married an American, you were kind of like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. Um, so I, I found that very, very fascinating. Um, and, and there was just so many traditions in New Orleans because of the fact that it was Spanish and then it was French and then finally, much later, American. So that was that was one of my favorite parts to write about. Um, the, the most difficult was probably the Haiti uh, issues, the Haiti time period. Not difficult to write because it wasn't interesting, but because it still resonates, Haiti is still struggling with all of that, that historical um, baggage that they had. And I, I would find myself getting very angry, you know, as you, as I'm writing and doing more research and then realizing, you know, every time that people refer to Haiti, it's always the poorest country in the Western hemisphere, you know, and I'd be typing, yelling at the computer, like, well, you know why, you know, <laughs> And you can't write enraged, you know, you have, <laughs> there has to be a little bit of distance. Cause again, it wasn't, it's not a textbook. So I just wanted to keep it in context, but at the same time, it was hard to read some of that history and not just, well, and I did sometimes have to walk away from it, let cool down. And that's, I think that's the problem or the risk of writing historical fiction anyway is that the, the more you drill down, the more you find out, and the more you find out isn't always the um, party line, the, you know, the, the quotes that we say to make ourselves feel good. Um, and you find some ugly truths. And sometimes it's hard to write that, to, to talk about the truth without all of that seeping into the actual narrative, because that's not what it's truly about. Well, especially right now when there's so much going on in Haiti and with Haitian yeah. refugees and I mean it's just yeah it's it's never ended and 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 this whole idea of like what you say yeah it's always referred to as like the poorest country in the western hemisphere right but it's also not referred to as like the first black republic <laughs> like, right they don't refer to it that like, way exactly you can't separate those two things you know in um white supremacist worldview like it just well, and you know you say oh it's the poorest country in the western hemisphere you know france demanded a 21 billion dollar payoff 
um, to leave them alone, which was not paid off until 1947. So there's kind of some reason, you know, that's just never mentioned. It's just kind of glossed over. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, next question is, uh, did any libraries or particular librarians play a role in your research process? Um, not so much. Um, I, I have to say that most of the research was either online or reaching out to, um, you know, members of certain societies, like, you know, New Orleans has a, you know, historical society, St. Louis Cathedral has, you know, kind of an architectural society. There's a historical society for Underground Railroad in Ashtabula, which is a small town in Ohio. Um, so I tended to reach out more to historical societies um, or uh, members of organizations that had some particular interest. Like I said, the Underground Railroad or they, uh, the Haitian diaspora, or um, there's a, a woman who is Haitian, but she does these YouTube videos to try to teach you kind of Haitian Creole and Haitian culture. Like this is, you know, food we eat and this is how you say this and, and talk about their religion. So I kind of log, you know, subscribe to her uh, podcasts and things like that. So not libraries so much, not that I, you know, I love libraries, I'm a library board member, but in this particular case, it was more, um, I, I didn't want the reading so much as, you know, I wanted to see photos and talk to people who were sort of still actively involved in things, so. Thank you. Um, uh, next question is, as someone who has studied the history of Hispaniola at the U, I appreciated your portrayals of Haiti. What background research went into Remembrance? You talked a little bit about this, but maybe a little Yeah, bit. so, um, you know, people always ask, well, you know, why is, you know, Haiti is half of an island, you know, it's, it's Hispanola. So you have the GR on one side and Haiti on the other, and there's a huge financial difference between the two. Well, one was Spanish and one was French. And on the one side, on the French side, they fought for their freedom and, um, and won it but then they were extorted. So it was just a very, very different historical arc that said the other side of Hispanola, the DR, has been very less than cordial to Haitians as well. Anyone that wanted to, you know, to immigrate, they, you know, they put up barriers, you can't come here. So they, I mean, they've, you know, it's not exactly like they see themselves as one people. And, and I'm not saying that they, I'm not suggesting that they should. But the, you know, again, there's this very real historical context in which you have to view Haiti. And to your point, it continues on. It still continues to resonate to this day, um, the, the kind of the egregious treatment of Haitians. And, and it's not really, a, it shouldn't be a surprise on some, some of the issues that they've had to labor under. Yeah, it, it just, you know, the time and the history just keeps going, right? It just, and it keeps reverberating. Um, uh, another reader asks, have there been any rumblings about adapting Remembrance for the screen? Who would be your dream casting for Abigail or Margot? So I would love to have like Angela Bassett 
for um, uh, Abigail. She's she's so regal and kind of she can be so cold and read off as as queenly. And and I see Mother Abigail that way. You know, she's walled herself off to protect herself from her grief and despair and channel that into something really magnificent. And somebody like Ruth Negi as um, as as Margot. So, you know, I do know that they're, you know, my agent is talking to people, uh, has talked to people in, in Hollywood. I, they haven't called. I'm still waiting. Uh, but um, yeah, yes. so I would love, I mean, there's a lot of amazing actresses that I think would be great, but I, I see those two in those two particular roles. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, like, it's just can feel completely random, right? Like, it can just be like, oh, nothing, nothing. Hey! guess what? Netflix wants to do a three-part miniseries on your blah, blah, blah for next year. And it's like, what? You know, so it's just from zero to five. I would be okay with that. You would be okay with that. Okay, good. I would be okay with that. Yeah. All right. So everybody listening, just spread spread that around. Mm -hmm. Um, We have another question. What tips would you give to a pre-published author who is balancing a demanding day job and family with the urge to write? Um, so I had this patient once who was a VP for Starbucks, right? And she gave me one of the best piece of, pieces of advice just for life, not just writing, but for life. Um, and I, I try to use it, but again, referring back to what we talked about earlier is being kind with yourself and gentle with yourself and not beating yourself up that you're not getting your five hours. And what is that? Five hours of writing? That has never happened in my life. But uh, I so know. Be- was he lying? Like that's not even. I mean, it could have been like I could. I could have. It could have been three. But even three every morning. Well, yeah. Come on now. It's like so. <laughs> I would get up at four, but you know the kids go to school have to get up. Mm-hmm. So what are you saying, man? And then your kids hear you up. Of so then they get up. Right. There's no way. Absolutely. To win. You can't. Absolutely. Do it. But I think you have to be, you know, gentle with yourself and, and, and realize what the limitations of your job are. So whether, whatever, whether you're teaching or a lawyer or, you know, work in the post office, you have to be just, it is what it is. You know, you have to keep the lights on. That said, the piece of advice this VP gave me was whatever the limits uh, that you can find in your schedule, put it in your planner just as if it were a business meeting. So if it's like from seven to 7.45 and that's the best you can do, put it in your planner and it's, it's sacrosanct. You know, if it were your boss who said, well, you know, we have a meeting at 9.15 and 9.45 and somebody called and said, you know, the cat is throwing up. You'd be like, dude, I can't handle that right now. I'll get back to you. She said, look at it the exact same way. So if you're like, it's from 6.45 until 7.30, this is my writing time. Unless there's blood or smoke, you just, you know, that's your time. And there may be days when there is blood or smoke and you have to deal with it. But at least you have that kind of set around as your time. The other thing that I think is really important, invaluable, you have to find your people. Um, that might only be one or two people, but you have to find people who also want to write, who are also, you know, critical readers 
that you can get together with. It might only be once a month, two hours once a month. But I think that does two things. Number one is it gives you a deadline against which to push. You know, it's like, oh, it's the last Sunday of the month. I have to have at least two paragraphs written. But it also gives you people that kind of are in your own headspace that can look at what you're writing, have critical thinking and say, this is what works for me and this is what doesn't. But I think you have to have a network of people that, that value writing as much as you do. And just to kind of, um, you know, push a little further on that, how do you, how does one go about creating a network like that, do you think? So depending on what, what it is you write, I mean, there's, again, sort of getting back to there, there's a group for everybody, you know, um, there's romance writing groups. Um, there are historical fiction writing groups. There are um, memoir groups. And if you, you go online, you can go on Twitter, you can go on Instagram, uh, Facebook. I'd say more, more Twitter has that. I think Twitter is like ADD kind of thing, but there it is valuable for that. Um, and I can't tell you how welcoming writers are to other writers, even new writers. And a lot of them, or libraries, sometimes bookstores, now that they're starting to open back up, a lot of them will have writers groups. Um, I know people that I've met that started their own, like, okay, we, we've met. Um, you can join if you write children's, um, there's CIWA, where, and they have their own critique groups. So I would start with that, um, just to sort of get used to it. Most of them will say, you know, we're going to have a write-off for on Sunday for half an hour. Um, NaNoWriMo, which I don't do, is also has NaNoCamp, where you get to meet people and they have local groups. So I, I, I would start with that. Thank you. Um, what's your favorite genre to read? Any new books that should be on our radar? Oh my gosh, I, I'm reading so much stuff. Um, or I'm not supposed to be, but I but I am. Uh, so I I love I kind of love fantasy, but not high fantasy. I like you know kind of low fantasy, kind of magical realism. So um, TJ Klune has a new book out. Um, he did um, House on the Cerulean Sea, and he has a, I think it's called uh, Something Under the Door, it just came out um, maybe a week ago. Um, uh, I'm, I'm reading When Stars Rang Down by Angela you know, Jackson, and um, I, I, I'm, I wanna read uh, uh, Love Letters from W.B. Du Bois. Um, so, but there's I like a lot of books that I like it to have a little bit of fantasy, a little bit of magical realism, but I it has to almost always has to have some sort of historical component as well, because I I just again I'm a I'm a geek nerd person, so I and I love finding out about about new things. So, from one blurred or black nerd to another, I salute you. Um, <laughs> That's the blurred solution. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have another question here. We're nearing our end time, but we've got another one. A question from Facebook. Uh, comment first. Thank you for writing this beautiful book. Uh, do you plan to write more? Asking hopefully, and you did mention uh, that you're working on a new book. I know writers, there's, there's very different 
uh, philosophies about this. I know people, it's it's all, almost, you know, superstitious, like people don't like to talk about it too much. And then some other of us who are very loquacious could just go on about it forever. So I don't I don't know how much you would want to share, but um, I was going to I actually to have a book coming out September of 2022. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so that we're actually, um, it's actually already, you know, they're working on the artwork and all of that. Um, Congratulations. And that's thank you. Uh, and that's called The Last Dreamwalker. And, the, and it is about um, a, a young woman in her 20s who's estranged from her mother. And she's always thought that she's had some kind of mental illness. But when her mother dies, she finds out that it isn't, but that she actually has a power that she's inherited from her ancestors who are Gullah Geechee. And um, she gets caught up in this battle with her Gullah Geechee ancestors and her family. She has the ability to walk in dreams and manipulate them and bring them back into the real world. Wow. So that's amazing and also kind of scary. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that'll be out uh, September, 2022. Okay, so. great. So a year from, from now. Right now, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yep. excellent. Whew, okay. <laughs> now he's got something, got something for us. Um, the commentator says, yay, and yay <laughs> is in all caps with two exclamation marks. So yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for uh, wetting our appetite with that. Um, I'm actually going to uh, close it down here. Um, Thank you so much, Rita, uh, for uh, bringing us your energy and your brilliance and your warmth. Uh, you know, we unfortunately, because of Zoom, um, can't all be in, I mean, because of Zoom, uh, because of Zoom, well, Zoom, Zoom is the, the cause of COVID, but uh, because of the pandemic, we can't all be in the same room, but um, we can definitely feel your warmth uh, through the, the Zoom screen and um, look forward to the time when you can come visit with us in the Twin Cities, which you may or may not know is one of the reading uh, cities in uh, the country. We love- uh, That needs books. to be on your license plate. Yes, it does actually. <laughs> There's a lot of book nerds here. So that, that could go a long way. Um, so yeah, so we hope at some point we can actually uh, have you here in person. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you again, Rita. Thank you. Bye. That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library event with Rita Woods. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Mary Kubica. Over the last decade, thriller novelist Mary Kubica has established herself as a mainstay of the genre. Her latest is Local Woman Missing, a daringly plotted, emotionally eviscerating psychological thriller about several women who vanish without a trace from a seemingly safe and ordinary community. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, Remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, 
where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.